Welcome to the latest episode of the Case Collective podcast. My name is Kingsley Grimshaw and this month I'm joined by Gigi Linus, solicitor in Barry Nielsen's Brisbane office in the professional indemnity team. On this episode, we'll be considering when a limitation period begins to tick on a policy dispute, the importance of understanding the true nature of a claim when reviewing policy response, whether a traffic jam constitutes a dangerous situation, and what it means to gain an improper personal benefit in the context of a DNO policy. Without any further ado, Gigi, please take it away. Thanks, Kingsley. Our first case note today relates to the New South Wales Court of Appeal decision in Ali and Insurance Australia Limited. In this case, the Court of Appeal allowed an appeal brought by the applicant against an earlier decision of the District Court, which dismissed his damages claim for an alleged breach of a home and contents insurance policy by the respondent. By way of background, the applicant lodged an insurance claim under a policy held with the respondent on the 10th of October 2013, in relation to an alleged break-in at his home the day prior. However, the claim was rejected on the 20th of May 2014. On the 16th of October 2019, the applicant commenced proceedings against the respondent for damages for failure to comply with the policy. The respondent sought to have the claim dismissed, arguing that it was statute barred because the claim had been brought outside the six-year limitation period pursuant to Section 14 of the New South Wales Limitation Act 1969. The respondent's argument was centred on the cause of action being the date of the alleged break-in, specifically the 9th of October 2013. At trial, the primary judge found in the respondent's favour, confirming that the applicant's cause of action accrued when the break-in took place and that the proceedings were in fact statute barred. The Court of Appeal, however, ultimately held that under the policy, the respondent's obligations to compensate the applicant for loss arose upon the respondent's decision to either accept or decline a claim made by the applicant. The applicant's policy did not contain a clear contractual promise to the effect that the respondent was liable to indemnify an insured upon the occurrence of a listed event, such as the burglary, and therefore the limitation period did not start running at that point in time. In terms of key implications, this decision highlights the importance of considering the particular policy terms before making assessments on the merits of procedural issues, such as limitation periods. Thanks, Gigi. The next case we have today is APD Technology PTY-LTD and Maximo Developments PTY-LTD from the full federal court. In this matter, the court held that an insurer was liable to indemnify its real estate agent insured for defence costs incurred in successfully defending a claim that it engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct and or breached a fiduciary duty owed to its vendor client by charging a 50% commission on the sale of a property. The background facts of this one are quite interesting. In 2009, the vendor purchased a vacant parcel of land on the Gold Coast. In 2014, the vendor received development approval to construct 203 apartments on the property. However, the vendor was unable to obtain funding for the proposed construction and so resolved to sell the property. The vendor engaged the insured as agent to sell the property and between 2015 and 2016, the vendor entered into several iterations of an agency contract with the agent. The relevant contract between the vendor and agent, which was entered into on 5 November 2016, provided that up to a purchase of $12.245 million, commission would be 2.2% of the contract price, and any amount above $12.245 million, the commission would be 2.2% up to $12.245 million, plus 99% of any amount above. 
In early 2017, the property was sold for $26.4 million, including GST. Therefore, pursuant to the contract, the vendor paid the agent commission of $13.2 million. The agent in turn paid $5.5 million to another agent, Mint Property, that introduced the property's buyer on the basis that it was a conjunction agent. The vendor alleged that it agreed to the commission arrangement on the basis of false representations made by the agent to the effect that all commission beyond 2% of the purchase price would be returned to the vendor. It was also alleged that the purchase price was artificially inflated above the actual value of the property as a means of allowing the overseas interests behind the purchase of the property to transfer money into Australia. The vendor alleged that the agent's representations were misleading or deceptive and that the agent's conduct was otherwise unconscionable in breach of the Australian consumer law and a fiduciary duty owed to the vendor. The vendor sought to recover from the agent all commission received beyond 2.2% of the purchase price. I note that at first instance, the vendor also brought a claim against its solicitor engaged in relation to the purchase. Barry Nielsen acted for the solicitor in defence of that claim, which was dismissed at trial, and that decision was not the subject of appeal before the full court. What was the subject of the appeal was the agent's entitlement to cover under its professional indemnity policy. The stock standard insuring clause of that policy provided that the insurer agreed to indemnify the insured against civil liability for any claim for compensation first made against the insured during the policy period and which is notified to the insurer during the policy period arising from the breach of professional duty on the part of the insured incurred in the conduct of the insured's professional business. The agent's insurer declined indemnity on the basis that the vendor's claims were, in effect, claims for restitution of monies had and received or for restoration of an unconscientiously gained benefit such that the claims did not trigger the insuring clause. Turning to the decision at trial, the judge dismissed the vendor's claims against both the agent and the solicitor, finding the vendor to be an unreliable and unimpressive witness and finding that the agent had not represented that the commission would be paid back to the vendor. However, a secondary issue to be determined at trial was whether the agent was in fact entitled to cover under its professional indemnity policy. In terms of the principle applicable to the policy dispute, his honour accepted that the insurer was not bound by the way in which the vendor had chosen to formulate its claim. Rather, the court concluded that its task was to ascertain the true nature of the claim in order to determine whether it fell within the insuring clause. The insurer argued that the true nature of the claim would be exposed if the court were to find that the agent was required to account to the vendor for its unauthorised benefit because it would be against conscience to allow them to retain it and that it would be wholly against conscience that, in those circumstances, the insurer should finance a resolution of this tawdry dispute. It was on that basis that the insurer submitted that the wording of the insuring clause should be read down so as to exclude any claim in respect of liability for unconscionable conduct or to repay some ill-gotten gain. While his honour found that the insurer's reasoning had some force, he noted that the insurer's analysis failed to take into account that if the vendor's claims were established, then the policy would not indemnify the agent because indemnity would be excluded by the policy's dishonesty exclusion. On that basis, his honour found no reason to read down the plain meaning of the operative words in the insuring clause. As a consequence, the insurer was required to indemnify the agent for its defence costs incurred in successfully defending the matter. The insurer appealed against the primary judge's order requiring it to indemnify the agent on the basis that the primary judge erred, one, by failing to characterise the vendor's claims as ones for restitution, which would not trigger the insuring clause of the policy, two, by rejecting the insurer's argument that the true nature of the claims created a situation against conscience in which the agent could not retain an unauthorised benefit, three, by failing to conclude that a claim which involved the unauthorised retention of a benefit was not a claim for civil liability for compensation and therefore such characterisation was relevant to both the insuring clause and the exclusion clause. The full court did not accept that the vendor's claims against the agent were 
properly characterised as claims in restitution and therefore falling outside the scope of the insuring clause. Rather, according to the full court, the claim against the agent was properly characterised as claims for compensation for three reasons. First, given that the agent was required to on-pay part of its commission to other people, including a substantial portion of about $5.5 million to a conjunctional agent, an order requiring the agent to pay an amount of money to the vendor would not merely have involved the repayment of a benefit or ill-gotten gain, and the agent would have, in fact, suffered a loss out of its own pocket. Second, the vendor's claims were not pleaded as claims for monies had and received or debt, but rather as claims for compensation for contravention of statutory provisions and for breach of fiduciary duty. Third, while there may be several alternative remedies arising out of a factual scenario, the mere possibility of recovery based on money had and received is not sufficient to characterise the claims made by the vendor as falling into that category. In those circumstances, the full court adopted the trial judge's conclusion that the claim fell within the insuring clause and the insurer was required to indemnify the agent for its defence costs incurred in successfully defending the matter at trial. The full court's decision serves as a reminder to have regard not only to the general nature of a claim, but the specific causes of action pleaded and the remedy sought. The mere possibility of a claim being pleaded as one for money had and received is on its own not enough to characterise a claim as falling into that category for the purpose of assessing whether an insurance policy responds. Thanks, Kingsley. My second case note relates to another decision handed down by the New South Wales Court of Appeal in Collins and Insurance Australia. The main issue here was whether a traffic jam arising from an accident caused by an insured driver's negligence is considered a dangerous situation under Section 3A, Subsection 1D of the New South Wales Motor Accidents Compensation Act 1999, or the MACA. By way of background, an insured driver crossed onto the wrong side of the road and collided with another vehicle on the Kings Highway in Canberra. The appellant in this case was driving towards the accident, but because she was driving along a long blind bend in the road, she did not see the line of stationary vehicles that extended from the earlier accident until the last minute. To avoid colliding with the rearmost vehicle, she steered her vehicle up on an embankment on the left side of the road. As a result, her vehicle overturned and she sustained personal injuries. She subsequently brought a claim for compensation against the insured driver's compulsory third-party insurer pursuant to the MACA. At first instance, the primary judge held that the insured driver was not liable for the appellant's injuries for two reasons. First, the primary judge held that the applicant's claim was not covered by the insured driver's insurance policy because the traffic jam caused by the insured driver's earlier accident was not a dangerous situation caused by the driving of the vehicle in accordance with section 3A subsection 1D of the MACA. Secondly, the primary judge held that the insured driver did not owe a duty of care to the appellant because her accident was remote from the insured driver's earlier accident. On appeal, the court held that whether a situation is dangerous must be determined by reference to the circumstances immediately prior to the injury. The Court of Appeal found that the traffic jam resulting from the earlier accident was a dangerous situation because, one, a queue of stationary vehicles was not visible to a driver until within 50 to 65 metres. Two, the existence of the queue could not have been anticipated by reasonable drivers taking care for their safety. Three, it was not necessary for a driver to drive at less than 60 kilometres an hour where the speed limit was 90 kilometres an hour and there was no sign advising a lower speed limit. 
and four, a car driving at 60 kilometres an hour could not stop in time without difficulty. The Court of Appeal held that the insured driver owed and breached a duty of care to the appellant for causing a collision on a regional highway and creating a risk of injury to other road users who were not involved in the initial collision. The Court of Appeal found that the consequential risks arising from a collision on a two-lane highway were foreseeable and not insignificant, and that a reasonable person in the insured driver's position would have taken precautions to avoid the collision. Interestingly, the Court of Appeal also found that the appellant was 20% contributorily negligent on the basis that the driver of the rearmost vehicle in the queue and the, and the driver of the vehicle behind her were able to avoid a collision and injury. So what we should take away from this case is that a driver may be found liable where they create a dangerous situation that obstructs the path of other drivers, which requires the other drivers to take evasive action to avoid a collision. Our final case note today involves the decision of Hackier Holdings and McGrath number two out of the federal court, which involved consideration of an improper profit and prior circumstances exclusions under a director's and officer's policy. By way of background, on 12 October 2012, Hackier Holdings entered into a contract with Denim Constructions PTYLTD in relation to the design and construction of an aged care facility in Hamlin Terrace, New South Wales. By 21 May 2015, Hackier alleged that Denim was unable to complete the project and Hackier was forced to appoint a new builder, resulting in a significant delay and associated losses. On 24 April 2017, Hackier commenced proceedings against Stephen McGrath, who was a director of both Hackier, i.e. the plaintiff, and the sole director, shareholder, secretary and general manager of Denim Constructions. Hackier alleged that given his dual roles with both parties of a construction contract, a reasonable director of Hackier in McGrath's position should have known of Denham's financial difficulties and, as a director of Hackier, disclosed these difficulties to Hackier. Hackier alleged that had it been informed of Denham's financial situation, it would have appointed another builder to the project sooner and avoided certain expenses. Hackier held a director's and officer's liability policy with NEON underwriting, underwritten on a claims-made basis for the period 23 January 2016 to 23 January 2017. The insuring clause was triggered on there being a claim made against a director or officer, in this case McGrath, during the period of insurance. Neon disputed, however, liability under the policy and was joined to the proceedings by Hackier. The contest between Hackier and Neon concerned the application of the following exclusions. One, an exclusion in respect of loss in connection with a director or officer gaining any personal profit or advantage or receiving any remuneration to which he or she is not legally entitled. And two, an exclusion in respect to any circumstances known by a director or officer prior to the period of insurance. In terms of the improper profit exclusion, the court found that it was engaged on the basis that one, by keeping the contract on foot, Denham gained an advantage to which it was not legally entitled. And two, Denham's advantage was in fact a personal advantage enjoyed by McGrath in circumstances where Denham was in reality controlled by McGrath. While not relevant in circumstances where the court had concluded that the improper profit exclusion operated to remove cover, it went on to consider the prior circumstances exclusion and concluded that it was not engaged. While the court was satisfied that McGrath knew Denham was in severe financial stress and could not complete the contract prior to the policy incepting, it found that McGrath did not know that his conduct exposed him as director of Hakia to any potential liability to Hakia. To this end, it found that McGrath was not aware of any relevant circumstance for the purpose of the prior circumstance exclusion. 
In terms of implications arising out of the case, the court's decision provides some guidance on the application of personal profit exclusions in DNO policies and the appropriate circumstances by which a court may find that a corporate benefit is in fact a personal benefit despite the existence of a corporate bail. While strictly obita, the decision is also suggestive of a rather narrow interpretation of prior known circumstances exclusions for the purposes of DNO policies, which will no doubt be tested further in the future. That's it for this episode of Case Collective. As always, you can read a full summary of the cases discussed in today's episode and get in touch with our team by heading to our website at bnlaw.com.au. And if you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Until next time.